you may have heard, we've had an election in our country this week. I'd be shocked if, if anyone in our country didn't know that. But we don't know who our president uh, will be. There are still votes being counted. Now, now, you may know by the time you watch this on Sunday morning, but as of this moment, when we're taping on Thursday morning, we don't know. There are states still to be called. There, there have been states that have flipped in directions that no one predicted, at least the pollsters. There are lawyers involved. There will be recounts. Both, both of the candidates have claimed that they will be the winner, but at this moment, it's, it's pretty close. We don't know when this will be determined. We don't know how long before we will know who will lead us. And that's creating anxiety. There were protests last night. I suspect there will be more in the days to come. There's stress. There's worry. There's anxiety. How will this be determined? Who ultimately will make the decision? Will it be the voters? Will it be the courts? Only time will tell. It reminds me a bit of our story that you just heard read a few moments ago from 1 Samuel chapter 8. This particular passage of Scripture reflects a time in Israel's history when, when Israel was a nation, not like we are a nation, really just a loose confederation of tribes sharing a, a common ethnic background, sharing a common history, sometimes working together better than others. But increasingly surrounding the Israelites were nations, not tribes, nations, powerful nations, strong nations, nations that wished to do the Israelite tribes harm, nations that were a visible, tangible, clear and present danger. Nations that were led by powerful kings. At this point, Israel didn't have a king. God would raise up judges or, or prophets like Samuel, we heard about in today's story. But God was Israel's king, and God would give direction and speak through the judge or the prophet, but the people wanted a king. Even though God had led them into battle before and given them the victory, the fear was, how do we know when the Philistines attack that God will be with us, that God will be on our side? We want a king like the other nations to lead us. So they go to Samuel and say, appoint us a king so we can be like the other nations. Samuel was opposed to this. Samuel vehemently believed that God should be the only king of Israel. Because he knew that the issue was that God was faithful when Israel was faithful. But more often than not, Israel wasn't faithful. They wanted a king who would be with them whether they were faithful or not. Well, surprisingly, in my mind, God indulged the people. God kind of gave in. 
the image I have is of that, that parent at the grocery store who's, who's tired, who's worn out, who's frayed, and their, their little toddler is on the floor kicking and screaming because they want a box of frosted cereal or a bag of cookies. I want it. I need it. And the parent gives in. You've seen it. Maybe you've done it. I think God indulged the people's request. God said to Samuel, the Lord answered Samuel, comply with the people's request, everything they ask of you, because they haven't rejected you. No, they've rejected me as king over them. So comply with their request. But give them a a clear warning, telling them how the king will rule over them. Now, I think we probably at this moment ought to just pause for a moment and and acknowledge that that our modern-day reality of of a president and a democracy in the United States is very, very, very different than ancient Israel with a king and a kingdom. There are numerous differences. One, you may remember from your U.S. history class, one, one of the first decisions we made as a nation was whether or not we would have a king, would it be King George Washington or a president, President George Washington. And if we're going to have a president, how do we elect that president? And and what will be the, the scope and limits of their power, authority as an executive? And how long will they serve? Well, obviously we chose a president and not a king. In ancient Israel, kings were not elected. Initially, they were chosen by God. God called uh, men to be kings, and then they were uh, physically anointed by God's chosen prophets. It it was believed that these particular kings were, were anointed with absolute power and authority to rule in God's place. In our modern world, we have democracy, We believe that our laws are affected, changed, based on a representative government, voted in by the people. We have a say in our laws and how we're governed. Not so in ancient Israel. The law had been handed down from God to Moses in ancient times. And and the role of the king was to lead the people in living faithfully in covenant according to those laws. Israel's king was to help God's people stay in covenant with God. And if they did, they would be blessed. Now, there are some things I think that kings and and presidents have in common or ought to. In both cases, the role of king and president is to serve the people they govern. It's a serving role. Whenever we figure out who our next president will be, they'll take the oath of office. They will say that they will faithfully, they swear to faithfully execute the office of president of the United States and to preserve, protect, defend the Constitution of the United States. And why does the Constitution exist? For the sake of the people. That's the role of president. Likewise, the kings of Israel were meant to be shepherd kings. The Bible uses that term. And think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd protects the flock. 
leads the flock, provides for the flock. A flock often is very dependent upon its shepherd. But the shepherds serve the needs of a vulnerable flock. Often, not always, but too often, both with kings and with presidents, the office unfortunately becomes more about the executive than it does about the people they have been chosen by the people, by God, to serve. Too often, it becomes about getting reelected, holding on to the throne, placating the base, about being popular, about leaving a legacy, about avoiding scandal. Now, I, I don't mean to be cynical. I certainly don't mean to disrespect those who have hold these, held and hold these high offices. It's a tough job. Many, I'm sure, are honorable people who have served honorably. And, and I'll be the first to admit, Scripture tells us to, to pray for those and respect those who are in, in authority above us. But the Bible is equally, at least equally clear about the frailty of leaders. That, that no matter how honorable they are, that they are just human. And the humans make mistakes. The humans are not perfect. And so God said, tell, Samuel, tell the people what it's going to be like to have a king. God said, this is how the king will rule over you. He will take your sons and will use them for his chariots, his cavalry, and his runners for his chariot. He will use them as his commanders of troops of 1,000 and troops of 50, or to do his plowing and his harvesting, or to make his weapons or parts for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, or bakers. He will take your best fields, vineyards, olive groves, and give them to his servants. He will give one-tenth of your grain and your vineyards to his officials and servants. He will take your male and female servants along with the best of your cattle and donkeys and make them do his work. He will take one-tenth of your flocks, and then you yourselves will be his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you chose for yourselves. But on that day... The Lord won't answer you. But let, me, let me just summarize that. What he's basically saying is, in time, the kings won't be there to work for you. You'll be working for them. I did a little research this week. You might find it interesting to know that, that currently the U.S. president makes $400,000 a year. And that when a president leaves office, they currently make $219,000 a year for the rest of their lives. That's not bad money if you can get it. Now, this might also interest you. Every president in my lifetime has been a millionaire before entering office and leaving office. In net worth, in modern dollars, Trump supposedly is worth $3.1 billion. If Biden wins the election, he's currently worth $9 million. President Obama is worth $40 million. George 
W. Bush, 39.5 million. Bill Clinton, 75.9 million. George Herbert Walker Bush, 26.3 million. Ronald Reagan, before he died, 14.2 million. Jimmy Carter, 8.1 million. President Ford, 8.1 million. Richard Nixon, 17 million. President Johnson, 109 million dollars. Now, I'm not suggesting there's, there's something inherently evil about having wealth. I'm, I'm not begrudging the, the fortune that these men have had. I'm not saying they did something illegal or inappropriate to earn their wealth or that they've used it in unethical ways. I'm not saying any of those things. I'm just simply asking the question, why does governing seem to always correspond with wealth? Why does someone have to be rich, I mean really rich, to run for and hold the presidency in our country? And why is it now for decades that under the presidency of both parties, the the presidents get richer and richer as our middle class shrinks and the poor remain poor? Sounds an awful lot like the warning that God spoke through the prophet Samuel. I mean, there's no denying. We, We all yearn for someone to lead us, not just as president. Every organization needs Leaders. I'm not saying God is against leadership. Our form of government requires an executive. What I am questioning is our human tendency, our human need to, to put so much hope and faith in a human that no human can live up to. I mean, just think about this moment. How many of us are so passionate about the candidate we voted for and the outcome of this election that we are currently divided from our families and friends. How does that make any sense? How many of us are dreading the holidays because of this election? Is it because we have put too much hope, too much faith, too much loyalty, too much belief in people could never possibly fulfill all that we expect of them. The author Lawrence Freeman writes, this is the problem. Our need for salvation is so intense that we too easily fall for the wrong kind of savior. We project our need for a savior onto hopeful looking candidates, socially, politically, even economically. We search for visionary leaders who will get us out of the mess we're in. And solve all of our problems at a stroke. Today, with the help of media, we get through saviors at quite a rate. Unrealistic expectations are wrecked in failures, scandals, or the loss of media appeal. Repeated disappointment soon breeds cynicism. We begin to doubt the meaning of salvation itself after so many failed messiahs and false saviors. I didn't actually see this, but I have heard, and I believe it to be true, uh, shortly after President Obama was elected, that there was a a city, a a town, probably in in North Florida, and at one end of the town, someone got a billboard, and, and they put on the billboard, 
that President Obama is our Messiah. And then on the other side of town, someone else bought a billboard and, and put it up and said, President Obama is the Antichrist. Friends, President Obama was a president. He's a human. He's neither the Messiah nor the Antichrist. Vice President Biden, if elected president, is neither the Messiah nor the Antichrist. President Trump is neither the Messiah nor the Antichrist. These are people. These are humans. You get to decide whether you think they are worthy of holding the office, and you get to decide whether you think they did a good job or not while they were in office. But they're just human. The kings of Israel and Judah often did evil in the sight of God. They failed. They, they did not live up to all that they could have been. Why? Because they were human. The first king chosen in the book of 1 Samuel is a man named Saul. He gets started uh, on a pretty good terms. He, he does a good job until he doesn't. And God rejects him. Then comes King David. Well, King David is wonderful. King David wrote most of the Psalms. King David, we, we say, was a man after God's own heart. He also raped and murdered. We think of King Solomon as this great king of wisdom who built God's temple who had over 700 foreign wives and worshipped their foreign gods. Why? Because they were human. They were exceptional in some ways and deeply flawed in others as all humans are. Now, there is one king in Scripture that is a notable exception to the others. Remember, Samuel objected to a human being king of Israel because on the grounds that Israel already had a king, that God was their king. He said Israel doesn't need one when there is a king already ruling us. And this gets echoed throughout Scripture. Jeremiah 10, 6 through 7 says, Lord, no one is like you. You are great, and great is your mighty name. Who would, wouldn't fear you, king of the nations? And along came a man named Jesus, who we believe to be God's own son, son of the king. Do you know that the topic that Jesus talked about more than any other was the kingdom of God that is with us, near us, among us. He said, when you pray, pray thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. On the day of his crucifixion, the, the Jews brought Jesus to the local governor, the guy in charge, Pontius Pilate, accusing Jesus of being an enemy of the state of Rome accusing Jesus of claiming to be a king. Well, that was unacceptable. 
And so Pilate asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus said, I am. But my kingdom is not of this world. And do you remember what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross? They hung a sign above his head that said, King of the Jews. But this king wasn't like any of Israel's former kings. This king, Jesus, never led an army into battle. He never rode on a chariot or a war horse. He never lived in an earthly palace or sat on an earthly throne. He never, in this world, during his earthly life, wore a crown of gold. He did wear a crown, a crown of thorns. And he rules. The resurrected Lord rules God's kingdom. Currently rules God's kingdom. A real, real, local, current, present reality. The kingdom of God is among us. And Jesus is the king. Throughout the history of the world, since Jesus' death and resurrection, nations, great nations, have risen and fallen. Powerful kings and queens, dictators, have, have risen and fallen, come and gone. But there is only one king and kingdom that lasts forever. The author Ruth, Ruth Held Evans says, when we speak about the kingdom of God, it's not some nebulous distant, romantic, faraway concept. We're not saying someday the kingdom will come to earth as it is in heaven. It's happening now. God is at work. Friends, I want to say to you today, I don't, I don't know how you're feeling about the election. I don't know if you're feeling stress, anxiety, worry, anger. Whatever happens, whatever happens in our nation and the the days, weeks, months, years to come. Whoever becomes our president in the coming weeks, days, months, and years. There is an eternal king. And there is a present eternal kingdom already reigning and ruling among us. Now don't, don't get me wrong. I voted and I, I hope my candidate wins. I am a law-abiding, uh, tax-paying U.S. citizen. I have a passport. I have a driver's license to prove it. But I want to say clearly, whatever happens in this nation, whomever our king or president may or may not be, my primary allegiance is to a different kingdom. My primary allegiance is to another king. It reminds me of a line from the famous hymn, This is My Father's World. It says, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems off so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens reign. God reigns. Let the earth be glad.